0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Getting Personal, Omics of the Heart. I'm Jane Ferguson, and this podcast is brought to you by Circulation Cardiovascular Genetics and the AHA Functional Genomics and Translational Biology Council. This is the September 2017 episode, and this month we delve into some of the newest research coming out in the October 2017 issue of Circ Genetics. If you go onto the Cirque Genetics website at circgenetics.ajjournals.org, you can see the table of contents for the latest issue and see sneak previews of upcoming papers that are published online in advance of the next issue. You can also find more in-depth materials for each paper, like editorials and other resources. So it's a really nice way to keep up with the newest cardiovascular genomics research. One particularly interesting paper included in the October 2017 issue is entitled Diminished PRRX1 Expression is Associated with Increased Risk of Atrial Fibrillation and Shortening of the Cardiac Action Potential, from Elena Dalmatova, Nathan Tucker, Patrick Eleanor, and colleagues. This is a really nice paper, which highlights some beautiful approaches used to go from a GWAS hit to functional understanding. This type of research is challenging, but really crucial as we move on from the GWAS discovery era, and I recommend you go online to read the whole paper. I talked to the first authors, Elena and Nathan, to find out more about their work. Yep. So I'm here with Dr. Nathan Tucker and Dr. Elena Dalmatova, who are the first authors on a recently published paper. So um, welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. So for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves?
1: Sure. So uh, my name is Nathan Tucker, uh, a PhD researcher, instructor in medicine at Mass General Hospital and the Broad Institute in Boston.
2: And um, my name is Elena Dolmatova. As you could probably tell, I'm Russian by origin. Currently, I'm an internal medicine resident at Rutgers University, and I'm in the process of applying for Cardiology Fellowship.
0: Um, So the two of you co-led a really interesting publication that came out this month, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, So some of our listeners may not have had the time yet to read your paper, um, so I was hoping you could give us just a brief summary of, of what this publication was about.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to start. So the, the focus of this paper and a lot of the other work that goes on in our group is the genetics of what's the most common cardiac arrhythmia, which is atrial fibrillation. Um, so really over the past decade or so, once these large genome-wide association studies uh, have been performed in order to identify uh, regions that are associated with disease, And then then we've followed up on that to try to determine some of the mechanism that underlies those loci. So this is an example of that that type of study. So I think for the vast majority of these regions, and this is not exclusive to our disease at all, but um, the the loci that are associated reside in what we used to refer to as junk DNA or intergenic DNA uh, that we now know as regulatory DNA. But the important point is we have no for, for the majority of these will say we have no idea of the mechanism through which they confer risk so so the point of this study was to examine a single locus for atrial fibrillation which we will call AF for the rest of this and try to determine the mechanism through which it might confer that risk so so kind of to start uh, the study started back in an era where we were using a you know, genotyping chips on large large cohorts of cases and controls to identify variation and then imputing variants to, to see what's associated. But we wanted to go into this study with a comprehensive understanding of what's at that locus. So to do that, we performed sequencing in a pretty modest cohort of 500 cases and 500 reference from Framingham Heart Study. And although it didn't really change what we knew about the the landscape of that region, we were able to go in with a confident understanding of what variants might be associated with disease risk at that locus. So then Elena really spearheaded a lot of the work to identify which of those variants might be important at the locus, so I'll let her take over from here.
2: So, as Nathan mentioned earlier, uh, many of those intergenic regions contain enhancers or regulatory elements. and a lot of data was coming up about epigenetic um, uh, loci in the genome, and we wanted maybe to narrow down that region down to some of the pieces that could be active or could be functional. So we used the activity markers that, such as histone modifications and DNA hypersensitivity uh, to to identify those potentially active elements then we tested them in zebrafish, reporter assay, to see if they actually active in the heart. When we realized that they're active in the heart, we were able to then do a little bit more targeted um, assay in the luciferase um, assay that would identify the ones that are actually differential between the um, risk and non-risk allele, showing that some of the SNPs can be actually changing the enhancer function. Uh, So this is how we actually identified uh, the SNP that was actually functional. And um, then next, what we wanted to do is to link this enhancer to the gene. And initially, we performed um, a high-C analysis, uh, which is a chromatin conformation capture. What it does, it actually captures a 3D structure of the DNA and shows what regions are interacting with what regions and we were able to see that this SNP was within the same block as the PREX promoter to maybe narrow uh, down and to identify the interaction a little bit better we performed 3C analysis that allowed us actually to link the enhancer directly to PRX promoter. So we had the uh, SNP that would change uh, the activity of the enhancer. We had the enhancer like of the promoter. Uh, we wanted to see if uh, the change in the SNP uh, would have any functional consequences on gene expression, and we performed the QTL study. So what it was, we looked at the genotype of the SNP and related it to the expression of the genes within that region and among all the genes that we actually tested only PRX1 expression was affected uh, with the risk allele conferring decreased expression of the gene however the consequences of gene uh, decreased PRX expression were yet to be revealed and that was part of the critical experiment that Nate focused uh, a lot of his efforts on
1: so we found the gene that was important we knew the directionality um, but a lot of times with these type of functional genomic story, which I hope we can elaborate a little bit more on later, is that uh, the results, given like what gene you identify in the direction, aren't aren't as clear as you would sometimes think for a given disease or trait. So, for example, a lot of the the coding variation for AF is identified in ion channel genes. It's thought to be an electrophysiological disease. But here we identified a transcription factor, which is largely thought to be a developmental transcription factor. So we kind of went in from a functional angle and say, all right, what are the consequences of this alteration? So we used two different models. The first was zebrafish, which I had reasonably strong background in. And we knocked that gene down, examined the development of the heart. Everything seemed, seemed reasonably normal. And then we actually examined the electrophysiology of that heart by optical mapping. We looked at the action potential duration which is basically the cellular phenotype for uh, that governs depolarization, repolarization and thus contraction of any given myocyte um, and found that the action potential duration in the zebrafish was shorter. Um, we wanted to follow that up and confirm it in a different model. Uh, we actually created a CRISPR-Cas9 mediated knockout of the gene in embryonic stem cells and differentiated those into cardiomyocytes and then saw that similar decrease in action potential duration. So. Kind of all altogether, I mean, a paper that spans a lot of different techniques, but what we did, we took association locus for human disease, we found a variant at that locus that seems to drive differential expression of a nearby gene, and then modeled that, that gene effect in order to give a physiological phenotype that matches with the, the disease of interest.
0: Something that struck me, I think you sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, is you know, the SNP that you end up showing to be causal, RS577676, 7, 7, 6, 7, 6, it's it's not necessarily the one that you would have picked sort of a priori by going through the GWAS strength of association and You know, I know we sort of all know that we shouldn't place too much weight on the specific p-value of an association when we're doing GWAS, but I think a lot of the time that sort of ends up being a screening mechanism and people look at sort of the strongest SNP and think that's probably going to be the most biologically relevant. But do you think that we're sort of, you know, by relying on this relative strength of the association in the GWAS to pick targets, we're really missing a lot of, of the potential biology that's underlying these diseases?
1: The way you look at a normal GWAS locus is we've always traditionally marked them with uh, what we call a sentinel SNP, which is the SNP that's most associated, and then a lot of times act as though that one might be mediating the function, whereas in reality you'll see a, a block of roughly equivalently associated SNPs that rely or that lie within the same linkage disequilibrium block. And at least for our cases, when we move forward, we really wanted to treat all of those SNPs to be equivalent. Yeah. And in this one, the, the uh, SNP that turned out to be functionally active was actually below, a little bit below that, what we would call that sentinel SNP. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a couple of different explanations for that. Um, one is there could be more than one functional variant at a locus and the LD structure kind of hides that. Um, the other could be that the sample that you're using in order to identify the, the SNPs of interest or the SNPs that are functionally associated may be biasing you a little bit, particularly with a smaller cohort like this. Yeah. Um, but I will say for our, our SNP, when you look at it in the larger GWAS studies, uh, it's, it's again roughly equivalently associated as what we'd call the top SNP. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question briefly, we always look at all of them. We have to, we have to be inclusive when we're trying to find functional
0: variants. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And, and that's something I really loved about your paper was how you, you know, pulled together all these different data types and sort of used as many different resources as you had access to to, to really tackle this question. And so I wonder, out of all of the different things you did, um, what was the most challenging aspect of this study?
2: Well, that was something that nobody really has done before. It was something that uh, there were few studies out there by when we, the time we started um, that would uh, tie some of the GWAS hits with the mechanism of the disease development um, in hyperlipidemia and other conditions. But there was really no paved road to take to get an answer to our question.
1: For me, personally, I mean, I really started this project, which, you know, this project took a considerable amount of time. And, you know, I started as a cell biologist and kind of modeling gene function in zebrafish. And and by the end, we ended up using so many different techniques and integrating so many new types of data into this study uh that i don't even know what i would define myself as anymore so <laughs> i think it's uh it's it's challenging to to learn how to to use all of these new data and to generate the new, new these new data but that's the kind of i don't know that's why why we got into this business that's why people wanted to research so that's it's it's challenging but but it's rewarding too
0: absolutely and sort of to look at the converse aspect. Then, were there was there anything that was easier than you expected? You know, did you have a, a eureka moment where you sort of said, "Yes, now everything is falling into place"? Um, <laughs> so I, I think,
1: yeah, I, I've been part of studies where I've really felt that that's happened. And given all of the kind of independent moving parts that were in this study, it was it's really hard to think of. Of one thing that that clicked, you know, every subcomponent had their had its own individual moment where it may have clicked. But really, until they all started, all the pieces of data started to come together. You never really felt that eureka moment. And you know, I think that's part of what science is. in normal. I mean, this paper was a lot of sweat, and on not only mine and Elena's behalf, but all of our collaborators as well. But but I will say, you know. At least using the genetics as a basis and the the GWAS data as a basis, we knew that something was there going in. We knew that we weren't on some wild goose chase, but but really we're filling in a gap, knowing that we had a strong basis to build on.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear from you. Sort of that you know you had to do all of those experiments; they were all necessary because I think a lot of the time when people are trying to follow up GWAS findings, they're really I don't know they sort of have a preconceived idea maybe of what path they want to go down and i think that's not the answer i think you know we have a lot of of gwas hits now and i think the sort of approach that you did to do all of these different experiments and to just do the hard work that's required to figure this out i think is really necessary and very laudable yeah thank you so was there anything that surprised you along the way
2: i may even touched a little bit on, on that uh, it was nice to see all the electrophysiological phenotype. Um, that was quite amazing. And the fact that the directionality of the effect was um, fit with what we expected to be with the risk allele, um, and how we were able to demonstrate it both in zebrafish and human tel- cells, and they were, again, matching. Um, Seeing though how those results could tie to the genetic data and what we know about atrial fibrillation susceptibility was great and rewarding. I wouldn't call it surprising, more like rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly... Uh, we were concerned that we wouldn't be able to observe any physiological phenotype because, I mean, we didn't even have a a good reason why PRX would be even involved in atrial fibrillation. That was a transcription factor, not an ion channel. Like, everybody thinks about arrhythmias and ion channels, by the way. It's not the same. Um, So it was great that we were actually tie the transcription factor to the, the disease when we were not even quite sure that it would happen
0: yeah yeah, and I suppose you mentioned the ion channels, and of course, there have been several other loci that have been identified for AF and from your work how how important do you think PRx1 is compared to these other loci and you know, do you think that this sort of study has to be done for every single one of these loci to really understand what's causing the disease in different people
1: Sure, so i I think the answer to that question depends a little bit on what uh the person asking it would deem to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if we're looking at GWAS signals for effect size, um, generally the effects of, of each given locus are pretty modest. In PRX, one locus isn't even at the top of those for AF. Um, so if you were looking for, let's say, clinical risk stratification, then it's not going to be the most important locus for AF. Um, but I, I think... What, what looking at, at these types of stories does is identifies novel mechanisms for disease pathogenesis. I think they're often unexpected. You know, it, it steps outside of the pathway analysis and candidate gene approaches that have been used in the past, and are really an unbiased way to look at you know why why the disease risk has changed. So, I think if our ultimate goal is to develop new therapeutics. Um, you know, we don't know which one of these loci might give us that hook into developing the new therapeutic. So uh, the second part of the question, I guess you'd say, like, does it need to be done for each locus? So yes, I guess, given what I just previously said. Um, I think we invest, we've we invested a lot, of, a lot of time and effort and resources into identifying all these loci through, you know, really really large discovery efforts, Um, but if we want to really maximize what we've done there with that discovery effort, then I think we owe it to ourselves uh, as a field to identify mechanisms and see which one of these are going to give us that hook to make that next big clinical therapeutic discovery. Um, But that being said, you know, this study, as much as we love it, um, it was really laborious, and it was a lot of moving parts, and it was a lot of work from a lot of people for a lot of time, and if we're going to have to do this for every locus, not only for AF but for all of the other GWAS that have been performed, like it's it's just an unacceptably slow rate of discovery. So, what we've been doing, you know, since this one has been been completed, is you know trying to find some higher throughput ways to screen through what might be functional variants um, to you know, integrating or generating new epigenomic or transcriptional data sets so we can better predict what might be the gene at a given locus and working on our models as well for when we want to look at physiology. So uh, we hope that we can talk more about these pretty soon. A lot of them are in the works, so we'll, we'll update soon.
0: Well, oh, that's exciting, yeah. And I think you've, you've laid out a really nice blueprint of how you can do these kind of experiments and how to follow up a locus. And, you know, I'm sure you learned a ton along the way, and you've obviously mentioned some of these, and you probably can't talk about everything you're working on. But I suppose with the benefit of hindsight now, is there anything specific about sort of the study design or the methods along the way that you would change for, for future studies?
2: One of the things that um, when we started, we started having one toolkit. And when we finished, we had a completely different toolkit. It's all because the science is developing every day, so every moment something new comes up. It's, uh, in the beginning, there wasn't enough epigenetic data to for us even to guess about the enhancers, and it was coming in only on the, almost on a weekly basis. And we were trying and pretty successfully implementing it, all the knowledge that was acquired and published almost immediately. We also had to uh, implement CRISPR-Cas to knock out PRX in the embryonic stem cells and uh, derive cardiomyocytes after that from them. Uh, All of that knowledge was not there when we started the study. So we actually implemented them almost immediately, but in hindsight, if we had all these tricks up our sleeves back then, of course we would be much more efficient and finish it much faster. <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll follow up on that, too. Is like it's One thing we learned, too, which Elena mentioned, all of the epigenomic data sets that we're updating and all the techniques that we're updating. I mean, I really think one thing that we learned was our prediction is really only good as the data that we put into it. and. I think our our point to learn, you know, particularly for all the other loci, is we really need to understand the epigenomic landscape in relevant tissues and cells, so, you know, moving towards that first um, before screening on what variant or what transcript might be important is a really important step for us and one that we've used as we've moved forward.
0: Mm. So what do you think would be the ideal follow-on study to this paper? Well, we
2: know that diminished PRX uh, expression shortens the action potential, but we have little idea about how how it is happening. Is it acting through the changing cardiomyocyte fate? Is it altering development or maturation of cardiac myocyte? Is it governing ion channel expression? Or maybe changing something with intracellular calcium regulation? Transcription factors can have many targets, and we're not quite unsure what these targets are in this particular case. So that would be a nice study to dot that I, uh, to follow up on this study.
0: So I suppose just to wrap this up, is there any message that you're hoping that readers will be able to take away from, from your paper?
1: Sure, I think from, if we're going to look from a disease standpoint, I I think the finding regarding the relationship between the gene and atrial fibrillation is important, Um, but I think, I hope we've also illustrated somewhat through this study how complex the genetics of the disease are. I mean, it's so much of the focus in the past has been really on ion channel uh, regulation, but there's so much more to this condition that that can really, is yet to be uh, discovered. So I hope, we shed a little bit of a light on a path forward for how to uncover some of this other, uh, these other mechanisms over the next few years, and then I think hopefully the other thing, uh, well at least that we hope gets relayed through this and other similar studies from other groups is the importance of filling this knowledge gap between the population genetics stories, uh, the GWAS studies, and that basic biology and I think there's a lot of potential for for making important discoveries for human health and clinical intervention in that space. So hopefully, you know, us and and other groups can use some of the things that we did in this paper and hopefully improve on them to address this and, and other GWAS loci to keep the field moving forward.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's a really Im- important message, and I think you've done a fantastic job on sort of starting us down that path to really translating these GWAS findings into more meaningful biology. So, Elena and Nathan, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thanks a lot for having
0: me. <laughs> thank you. And that's all for this month. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to getting up close and personal with Omics of the Heart, and with you, next month.